Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you're using the blue book, the Bible that's in the pew, uh, you would turn to page 961. We will refer a little bit to the passages that we read in the bulletin, but we're going to focus on several little sections of 1 Corinthians 15. This is the resurrection chapter. You've heard of 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. This is the resurrection chapter from beginning to end. Let's begin with verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And you'll see in verses 12, following what he's talking about there. For I delivered to you, and this is a creed, this is an early Christian creed that Paul uh, quotes here and then develops. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God or false witnesses of God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our hymn that we sang was based on that verse. 
Now, there was a question. One of the problems they had was what form will this body take? They were concerned about the resuscitation of a corpse. Why would you do something like that? And so he addresses that question later in verse 42. If you turn over to that verse 42, as he describes, we'll just read a few verses of this section. The nature of the change that will occur, that it's not simply resuscitating a corpse to this life. It's something totally different. So it is now with the resurrection of the dead after he has described different kinds of bodies and different kinds of glory for the, uh, the planets. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is our present body, is perishable. What is raised, that is the final resurrection body, is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And in this section you've heard read many funerals, beginning with verse 50. And here's a description again, like Thessalonians and Philippians that we've already read. Here's yet another description of his coming and the change that will occur. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. That is, we will not all be dead at that point. Some will still be alive, but everyone will be changed is his point. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, that is, we who remain, shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law and its condemning power. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we've read full and rich passages concerning the resurrection of Christ and our own future resurrection. And we pray that we will grow by it, that we will have our perspective changed and sustained. And Lord, that we will live out our resurrection life, that we will live out the forgiveness that we have and the new Character that we have in Christ. And Lord, we will live full of the hope that we have in Christ. Bless us, Lord, to that end, that your name will be lifted up this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The people in Corinth had a problem with the body, basically, influenced by Greek 
thinking. They had a problem with the continuation of the body, had a problem with even the body's life, even some of the body's normal activities. And they thought of themselves as kind of the super spiritual people who had already arrived, who had every already gotten everything they needed in Christ. And so they looked upon the body as just something immaterial that would be sloughed off one day and they would soar having been released from the body. And just to point out a couple of ways it manifested itself, as Paul treated this earlier in the book, and this serves as kind of an introduction to draw us in to see how their views affected them. One is that some of the super spiritual women had decided that things in the bed weren't worthy of being super spiritual. Deals with this in 1 Corinthians 7. And quotes the saying that a man shouldn't even touch a woman. And he's talking about within marriage, because that wouldn't be a spiritual thing. You can just kind of imagine this, you know, instead of, uh, honey, I have a headache. It's, honey, that wouldn't be spiritual. You know, (laughs) that's kind of the feel. All that bother in bed. Honey, 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 the body doesn't matter. Think higher thoughts. Think love that is higher and better than this. We're too spiritual to be involved in something so earthly and physical. So it really got down to where people lived in their view of the body. Another view, quite opposite of that, was that because my body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. We dealt with this three years ago, actually, on Easter, and I won't go into the details again, but it basically read like this. Yes, it's a prostitute that I'm sleeping with, but it's just the body. The body doesn't matter. It'll be done away with one day. It's only an outward shell. The real me is inside. It doesn't matter. But Paul writes there in that very chapter six Yeah, the body does matter because Christ has redeemed the body with his own blood. It belongs to him. The spirit indwells the body itself. It has become the temple of God. It is joined to Christ. It is a member of Christ. And one day the body will be raised. Yeah, the body is important. Some like to say you have a soul. Or some like to say, well, you just have a body. You are a soul. But the scriptures say, no, you are body. You are soul. So that what you do or don't do with your body is important. It is the real you expressing yourself. If your body is joined to a prostitute, you are joined. The real you, if you refrain from sexual relations in marriage, the real you is neglecting a real person, really. That would be Paul's approach. The body is you. The body is important. The body is a part of God's salvation. And so you look to the future. The body is involved in his salvation. Interestingly, we just in Sunday school talked about how the Christians were groaning, looking forward to their final adoption as sons. 
the final completion of adoption. And it's kind of odd language because we think of ourselves, no, we're already adopted. We're already children of God. And yet there's this groaning as we ache for our adoption as sons, Paul says there in Romans 8. But then he describes it. He says, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, it is so, our, our bodies are so involved in our salvation that right-thinking Christians, as they look forward to the final fulfillment of their adoption as sons, they look forward to the resurrection of the body, the redemption of their bodies. When their bodies will take on purity and cleanness and our bodies will be flushed of all sinfulness and our bodies will be renewed and made, as we've read earlier in 1 Corinthians those bodies that are spiritual and powerful and glorious and immortal. That's not wrong. That's a part of the Christian hope, of Christian longing, of the aching for the final fulfillment of his salvation. His very bodily oriented. And that is that spoke against these super spiritual people. It spoke against a Greek culture that looked at for the release of the spirit from the body. The super spiritual people said, I don't have any need of resurrection. I'm going to cut loose one day. I've already attained the fullness that will only fully flower when there's a release from this body. I don't need resurrection. Well, one of their misunderstandings, as we uh, pointed out, is that they misunderstood the nature of the resurrection body. And that's why I had us read verses 42 and following. Those verses tell us a little about the nature of that change, don't they? And remember what we read in Philippians, that he will change our bodies, the humble state of our bodies, to be like his body of glory. So always remember, whatever happened to Jesus in his body and however glorious he became as a human being, that was simply a picture as Paul says here, the first fruits of the whole harvest, just the first fruits of what's going to happen to the whole harvest. It's just a picture of that. So that bodily change, though, is described in some detail here, isn't it? Sown perishable, raised imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. So these perishable, failing, dying, aging Bodies subject to injury and sickness and pains of every sort. And they finally just give away. I think one of the saddest, saddest things to me is to be in a a nursing home and to see person after person after person staring off in the different into the distance or vacuous eyes kind of watching you a little bit walk by. And you realize that every one of the and I always want to know who is that woman? What was she like, you know, at five years old? What was she like at 12? What was she like at 21? And I always think, if I live long enough, I'll be one of those guys, you know, in the home. And they'll look at me all shriveled up and think, I wonder what that guy was. You know, he's all he is now is this. But I wonder what he was. You see, that's why we are we're perishable. We're dishonored finally in the end. We all just will wither and die. Every single one of us. We start from the beginning trying to ward off death with disease and 
And the older we get, we try to ward it off more and more and we fight this battle and every single one of us will lose that battle. Every single one of us. You know, I don't know anything else about you, but I know that unless Jesus comes, you will die. And the thing I really know for sure, whether he comes or not, you will face judgment with God. There's no doubt about that. I don't know the pathway for you, but I know that for sure. Because we're mortal and we're perishable. We're full of dishonor. And it speaks of weakness raised in power. Sown, and and the, the fourth phrase, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body, really is the root of all the rest of it. This is why it goes from perishable dishonored and weak to imperishable, glorious and powerful because it becomes totally controlled and conditioned by the spirit of God. It becomes no longer just a natural body under kind of the influences of this natural world. But now it is under the blessed total influence of the spirit of God and it partakes of that life in a whole new way and manifests itself in a whole new way in our very bodies. As John says, it doesn't look like right now what we are, but one day you'll see it, that we're the sons of God and our bodies will show it. Our bodies will manifest that that glory. And isn't it interesting how there's this thought for all of us of the fountain of youth? You know, in the third uh, Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade, there was the Holy Grail. They were looking for that cup, the cup that was used by Christ. And supposedly if you, it held water and you drank it, uh, you could be healed of injuries, sickness, and, and you would live on and on and on if you could just drink that water. We know of Ponce de Leon, right? Supposedly, the story is that he was looking for the fountain of youth. And that story of the fountain of youth was found in uh, old Eastern versions of what's called Alexander Romance. And you can see pictures of the fountain of youth in those romances. I recently was looking at a painting by uh, Cranach, who is the uh, painter of Martin Luther. And he has, uh, it looks like an Olympic-sized pool and facing this way. Old, old, shriveled people are getting into this pool and a lot of people are in the pool and they're getting out on the other side. They're young people, just brand new, like, you know, coming out 21 years old, coming in 81 years old. And of course, there are billions of dollars spent, right? Treatments and lotions and surgeries to make us look younger. And it is shocking because every time I look in the mirror, somehow... I have this fixed deception that I'm 35. Yeah. That's just that's what I see. I see a 35 year old until I see a photograph of myself. And then I'm thinking, well, I look like I'm 55 years old. Guess what? <laughs> just amazing. You can't stop your skin from doing certain things. and I can't stop these bags around my eyes and. I can't stop looking like I'm old and I'll die. But what is being said to us in this salvation is really there is a glorious fountain of youth that's beyond all your dreams. It's not just renewing your life here. Like you become you're 80 and suddenly you can get to be a 20 year old all over again. 
No, the resurrection mocks that. And last night says, no, that, no, no, no. We're not talking about something so flimsy, so pathetic as more of this human life. We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about bodies that are imperishable and glorious. We're talking about strength that has no waning forever. You remember in the musical, Methuselah lived 900 years. Remember that? 969 years Methuselah lived. You realize we'll shoot past 969 without a blink. <laughs> we, that won't even amount to the first few seconds of our new life. We take it, speaking of ages and millennia in the new creation, and however counting is done then, We'll be full and glorious, uh, no doubt made richer and richer through our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with God as we continually discover more of Him and enter into the glories of one another's lives. So every passing moment, so to speak, just becomes richer and fuller. So that's the change that's coming, the resurrection It's the only hope of this sad, dying world, you see. It's all we have. It's all we have. The existentialists, Sartre and others, were right that from their viewpoint, if you omit God and you omit any kind of divine influence, then nothing makes any sense anymore. There's no reason to do anything except some act, some wild act to try to affirm some meaning in the world, except there is resurrection. There's resurrection. And when and how, of course, is outlined as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 and Thessalonians and Philippians. And we saw this several weeks ago at Dustin's funeral, how the question of what's going to happen to those who have already passed away, that Gloriously, those who have undergone that horrible separation of soul and body and have suffered the pains of death, uh, they're, they're first in line. Remember I described it, those of you who are there, that they're in Southwest A, we're in Southwest B, right? So they're the first ones on the plane, so to speak. They're the first ones who experience the resurrection. And so... Dustin and Betty Tobin and John Smith and Mr. Brown and Mr. Tyson and others, you see, they're in they're they're the first ones resurrected as we as God, in a sense, shows them the honor that you've passed through death. You've experienced the horrors of it. You first will experience the blessings of the resurrection. And then, Paul says, we will be changed. We all end up in the same change, the same new body. But that's what happens. And at that point, the whole of creation is transformed. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, how the creation is tied to us. And it's like this huge boulder man fell. And when he did, he's chained to this. The creation is a boat that was just pulled down to the bottom with man's fall. Creation lost its purpose, its meaning, because it was attached to this this being that was to lead the way and now we don't glorify God and love God and it's like the creation itself is now meaningless. It's, it's running off the rails. It has no direction until finally we are restored to our, our rule and our perfection through the resurrection. Then creation is restored. 
CC, all of history is headed to that moment. All of history and all of the breakings and tearings of this world will all finally have a sweet, glorious consummation in our resurrection, which will become basically the resurrection of the whole world. And it was accomplished through Jesus Christ and no other. This proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ stands alone in history. It's not another God that has come and taken flesh and become a man and taken the place of man and lived a perfect life where man couldn't live it and then offer a sacrifice for sin that man couldn't offer and then enter into the new life that man couldn't have done for himself and exalted to rule over the world which man had lost that rule and restore us to that glory. There's no message anywhere in the ballpark like this in the history of the world. It is the entrance of God Himself into this world. And in this passage... Paul is dealing with these people who are saying, on the one hand, look, there's no resurrection from the dead. There's no need of the resurrection from the dead. We're just declaring it. It's not even existent. And then he's using his logic here and saying, wait a minute. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And this is interesting. I'd like to focus just on verse 17 as we close in these last five or ten minutes. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Isn't that interesting? Because it says in verse three, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, if Christ died for our sins, if that's where he took care of our sins, why is it that if he's not raised, then we're still in our sins? What's the connection here? Paul seems to indicate that if he's not raised, then his death meant nothing. And that's what he's saying. That's how critical the, the resurrection is. There is no salvation unless there is resurrection. You see, when Christ entered into our sin, when he identified with our sin, he was fully, totally punished by God, abandoned by God. The full wrath of God was poured out upon him on the cross. It wasn't just mankind putting him to death, but he was, he was tried and then he was declared guilty when he really wasn't guilty. And then he was sentenced to death unfairly, but it was truly a trial. That was the reason he wasn't just waylaid somewhere and they tried to kill him. But that's not what he was planning. That's not what he wanted to happen. No, it, it had to be a, a court decision. You see, it had to be declared that he's the guilty one in our place. So this was Christ taking on our sin. As it says in First Peter, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. In his body on the cross, he bore our sins. But he not only bore our sins there, but after when he had paid for sins, when he had suffered on the cross, then he died. 
His soul, as we know, went to be with the Father. He says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He told the thief, you will be with me in paradise. But his body, his body went to the grave. He was buried. We say that. He, he says it here. He was, he was buried. This is to indicate the full weight of the punishment of sin. He had to experience that aspect of, of our punishment, that aspect of judgment. His body became cold. His body began to break down. And if he was never raised from the dead, then there would be no indication that the cross had done anything for us. In fact, if he dies and death wins over him, then sin wins over him. Then, instead of his bearing our punishment and breaking free, he bore our punishment, but he got swallowed up by our punishment. And he's still under our punishment. Therefore, we're still under our punishment. It'd be like I saw just a blip of War of the Worlds the other night. And it's like all of the artillery of the United States goes against these Martian uh, vessels and are destroyed. Okay, all the army is destroyed. Then these these machines start coming out of the fire of that destruction after the regular people. You think they have a chance at this point? <laughs> and it's like if if our sin, if God's wrath and punishment has swallowed up Jesus, the mighty, glorious son of God, and he's destroyed, we have no hope whatsoever. There is nothing in this world for us. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no release from our habits and practice of sin, from the domination of sin. There is no hope of future, future resurrection. He's not resurrected. What do we think is going to happen to us? And Paul even says here, if Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He said, oh, and, and this is ironic. They fell asleep in Christ. That's the language they would always use to indicate you fall asleep in him and you wake up with him. So it was a beautiful way to describe the temporary state of this death that we will wake up in him. He says those who have fallen asleep in Christ supposedly just descended right into hell. They perished. They're gone. It's over for them if there's no resurrection. You realize how many pulpits, some local, but around the United States and in Europe, preach that there is no resurrection. We have no other hope but the glorious resurrection of Christ. But what a sure hope we have. The hope that his standing with God and he is in the presence of God. He has been received by the Father. What we have with the resurrection is, Christ, is the Father saying, Yes! 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 He has paid for sin. And it is available for anyone that wants it. You see? That's the declaration of a resurrected Christ. He has defeated sin. He has taken away punishment for anyone who trusts in Him. 
And not only that, but you gain the access that he has with the father. That's what he offers you. That standing, that intimacy with the father that even the son has. He says, come in a sense, join me in the father's presence. For I have died for sin. I have made sacrifice. And it is the father that gave the son to make sacrifice so that the father now can say, will you not be reconciled to me through the work of my own son that I sent and raised from the dead? Now, it's a horrible, terrible thing for them to believe or for it to be the case that Christ had not been raised But if you don't believe in Christ, if you don't believe that he's raised him from the dead, then you are still in your sins. Then you still are under the domination of sin. You're under the condemnation of sin, the judgment and final destruction that sin will bring. And you're still basically living for yourself and not giving yourself up to the will of God. Are you one who longs to to please God? Are you manifesting that self by the treatment you have of God's word? To want to know his word, to want to know his will, to want to find out more about Christ and God and to be a part of the people of God, to hear the word of God, to grow in the grace of God. Those are some of the signs of life. If you're still in your sins, then you're still bent inward. You're still saying, I don't want God to rule my life. I don't want his authority. I don't care to know what he says. I'll live my life as I want, when I want. I'll feel what I want to feel. I'll think what I want to think. And I'm asking you on this day when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ... Will it not be for you a new celebration of, first of all, forgiveness of sins? A clean conscience, no matter what you've done, that you can come and trust in Christ and know all of my sins, every one of my sins are taken away. Immediately I'm accepted by God. I don't have to work to get there. I don't have to earn the right. I don't have to be better and better. At some point I'll cross over and you'll say, okay, now, finally, you're good enough for me. But I simply come with all my sin and say, I'm a hopeless case. Have you ever said that to God? Lord, I'm a hopeless case. I'm locked in my sinfulness. I'm locked in my guilt. Oh, Lord, I trust in you alone. That's the cry of every single believer. Maybe not the exact words, but that's the intent. That's the helpless dependence of every believer. Oh, Lord. I have no hope but you. Without you, I'm hopeless. So for that forgiveness and the transformation now of becoming more like Christ, of becoming a person that more and more you do good to the people around you. You respond better to the people around you. You manifest specific things like patience and forbearance and listening and and then serving and working and Giving yourself away in ways you never have. Even when things aren't going well for you, love begins to spill out of your life in ways you never thought possible. And you start to change other people because of your goodness. 
He died basically to make us good. Isn't that what you want? Our only hope of being good from the inside out is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've thought often that what contact I've had with Down Syndrome children has been wonderful. I've, I've just had delightful encounters. And they're wonderful children to be around. Can you imagine, though, what it would be like if you could watch and the DNA of a Down syndrome child is suddenly healed and repaired and suddenly you could right before your eyes watch this person become normal, perfect child right before your eyes. You know, because something inside had changed. That that gene that was ruined is now repaired and the whole body takes on a whole new perspective. That's what God does with us in resurrection. He renews our spiritual DNA. He repairs the spiritual genetic flaws. And He restores us into the image of God Himself. That's what the resurrection is about. And as we've said, the final hope. The final hope of a new body. What are you hoping in when you die? What are you hoping in for the end of the world? What are you hoping in for the future? That is the hope. The resurrection of believers. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we praise you that you have made us soul and body. You've made us not like the angels who are just spirits, not like the animals that are just bodies, but we're this unique, wonderful creation. Soul and body. And so you save us, soul and body. You purify us, soul and body. You glorify us, soul and body. And Lord Jesus, you even became body. And you continue forever and ever, God and man, permanently united to our full humanity, redeeming our full humanity, bringing our full humanity in the presence of God. Oh, Lord, we praise you that you came to rescue us. And may there not be one person today who does not cry out and say, Lord, I'm a hopeless case in and of myself. You, Lord, are my only hope. May we all taste resurrection life in Jesus Christ, trusting you, depending upon you, and living out the new life that we have in him through your resurrection, looking to the final resurrection in that last day. O Lord, we seek you and you alone, our only hope. Amen.